You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The public corruption probe among state lawmakers is still rippling across the state. Representative Ty Cullen resigned from office and his number two post in the powerful finance uh, committee. And former uh, Senate Majority Leader Kalani English is expected to plead guilty to federal charges linked to the introduction and killing of a cesspool bill. The bribery scandal has put the spotlight on the wastewater issue. Here is House Speaker Scott Psyche about what happens going forward. We've also looked at bills that were introduced this year, so we're trying to piece things together. I, you know, I was actually kind of not very familiar with the cesspool-related bills that were mentioned in the news reports yesterday, uh, but we are taking, taking a look at all of, all of those pieces of legislation. You know, this morning we talked to Stuart Coleman. He is the executive director of the nonprofit group VI, which stands for Wastewater Alternatives and Innovations. He's also the former head of the Surf Rider Foundation, another environmental watchdog group, which has been lobbying for bills to help speed up conversion of the 90,000-plus cesspools across Hawaii. He, like others, was disappointed to learn that lawmakers were bribed to pass and kill bills for a cause he is passionate about. So it's very upsetting, to say the least, but I, I tend to be uh, more of an optimist, and I pray that it's not systematic. I don't think it is because we have made progress on this issue in the past, and we'll do so again, I hope, this session. Talk about what impact you think that this uh, might have on the success of these bills coming out. House Speaker said he's going to take a look at, at what's on the table. Yeah, and we, we met with uh, the Speaker and, and other legislators earlier in the session who really heard us out and understood, you know, how important these issues are. So, you know, I'm hoping that they will really take a renewed look at them and see that these are really important. Many of them are very common sense bills that are based on other states where they've been successful in converting their cesspools and and failing septic systems. Well, talk about this deadline that is looming, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I think that's that's the big stick. And, you know, at the rate we're going, are we going to be able to meet those deadlines? So share with our listeners uh, what the EPA has handed down. Actually, a state law, the EPA was part of the cesspool conversion working group, which I serve on. And the, the outgoing EPA member made a list of recommendations and sent it to a memo to the cesspool conversion working group. And, you know, right now there's a deadline of 2050 to convert all cesspools under Act 125, which was passed a a number of years ago. And, you know, at the current rate, we're not going to meet that deadline. And so that's why we're putting all these bills forward and recommending policy changes, because we really have to ramp up that level of conversion. Right now, they're doing about 150 to 200 cesspool conversions per year. But in order to convert almost 90,000 cesspools in the next less than 30 years, we need to be doing more than 3,000 a year. So we have a long way to go. And so we really hope these bills that are in front of the legislature now will get passed to to help the state and to help homeowners with this really difficult uh, process of converting these cesspools. It sounds like we need traction. You've had this working group of which Kalani English you know, was a part of. So how long has it taken, How you know, to kind of get to this point? Yeah, we've been working in the cesspool conversion working group for uh, almost three years now. Just to be clear, Senator Connie English was part of the cesspool conversion working group in name, but he, he didn't come to any of the meetings. Now, the scandal reflects on the cesspool conversion working group because we're just all 16, 17 volunteers who've been putting in a lot of work to come up with solutions. We're supposed to wrap up last year, but there was an extension. There are a number of us that are concerned that we're not moving fast enough and not thinking boldly enough. And so we really need to start meeting, you know, at least once a month and coming up with bold solutions about how to deal with this problem. That's my hope for the cesspool conversion working group. What are the bills that are uh, in play right now this session? Yeah, so we have a number of bills. You mentioned the uh, the stick that is the, you know, the deadline to convert all cesspools by 2050. And what we're trying to do is come up with a number of carrots as well to help homeowners in that regard. And so, you know, we're trying to bring back the, the tax credit for converting cesspools that expired in 2020. And we're also trying to create a cesspool fee and subsidy. And so there's a bill, SB 2802, that would ask cesspool owners to pay a small fee. What the bill does is it, it authorizes, the state would authorize the counties 
to charge a small fee because right now they're the only people who don't pay. Everybody else either pays through sewer fees or upgrading their cesspools and pays quite a bit, as, as a matter of fact. And yet cesspools are the big problem and the people with them aren't paying. And so it would ask them to pay a small fee that goes into a fund, a special fund, to help low and moderate income people convert their cesspools who other wouldn't, otherwise wouldn't have enough money because the cost of converting is probably the biggest obstacle. What is so that roughly? A, uh, it can be as low, you know, as twenty thousand. It can go as high as forty thousand. You know, with an average probably of thirty or thirty-five thousand. If it's difficult, depending on the quality of the soil, difficult conditions, slope, size of the lot, closeness to a body of water or wells. But you know, in other bills, we have a grant package HB two one nine five, where that would provide funding for you know low and moderate income people and folks on. Department of Hawaiian Homeland. So, you know, we have a number of bills that we're just trying to, they're really practical based on other state, states, like I said, that have been successful. And, and probably one of the biggest ones is the point of sale conversion and tax credit. And so that's when a property is sold, when there's a lot of money going back and forth, that's the best time to, uh, you know, make sure a cesspool is converted. So this gives them within a year a point of sale that they need to convert it and it also offers a tax break. And so buyer and seller can share the cost or one or the other can do it, take the full tax credit. Um, but this is done in a number of states and, and has proved um, really the best way to do it because you know people forget sometimes that these cesspools, it would be like selling a house with a hole in the roof. You, know, you would never allow that to happen because it's substandard, it's not acceptable. A cesspool is the same way. These are substandard systems that are not allowed anymore, and Hawaii is the last state in the country to ban them by several decades. We have been talking about that one for a long time. I mean, I remember the discussions back and forth and the pushback from the real estate industry. And, you know, but we're talking homes, not just in rural areas, rural neighborhoods, you know, like Kahalu, but we're also talking Black Point, where you've got those multi-million dollar homes that are on cesspool. It's, it's so surprising where the cesspools are. It cuts across every demographic, some in very wealthy neighborhoods, like you're saying, Diamond Head area, different parts of the city, and then, you know, in very poor parts of the state as well. So it's a mix, and, you know, we have certain priority one areas like Kahalu on Oahu and upcountry Maui on Maui, where we have seen its effect on drinking water, elevated nitrogen levels. New studies have showing that, you know, elevated nitrogen levels in drinking water can lead to higher rates of cancer, bladder cancer, colorectal cancer. So, you know, this is definitely a human health issue. It's not just an environmental issue because we've seen it in places like Long Island where they have seen increased rates of cancers, but also has huge economic tolls. Um, they've seen their shellfish industry collapse directly related to nutrients from cesspools and failing septic systems on Long Island. So we're using them as kind of a cautionary tale to say, we don't want this to happen to Hawaii. We don't want our reefs to be covered in algal overgrowth and lead to fish die-offs and things like that. You know, our water quality is too important here. Well, I know just recently, Surfrider Foundation came out with some um, sampling that they've done in waters off Kahalu, and you used to wear the Surfrider uh, Foundation hat. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you, you can see the impacts that we're dealing with. You know, well, you've got excess uh, nutrients in the water and, and then, you know, the, the issue of our, the health of our marine life and the, and the people that uh, the ocean users. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's taken effect. You know, Surfrider's uh, Blue Water Task Force, has you know documented elevated levels of bacteria you know across the state and you know it, it's really dangerous for this to be happening in coastal waters where you know we have our keiki and kupuna and we think it's safe in the near shore waters and and streams that lead into those waters and it's really not so yeah we've got to take care of our you know our locals and you know our visitors alike what are your hopes then as we watch this public corruption case play out in the courts? Uh, we don't know if it just ends here, but what are your hopes for the cause of cesspools? What I'm hoping is that, you know, the, the legislator will take, you know, a renewed hard look considering what happened at these bills and see that we, you know, we built a, just a solid base of support for them. And we we base it on uh, bills in other states, and so it's, we've done a lot of research. And so I'm hoping that 
you know, the legislator will act on these bills, the cesspool conversion working group will really ramp up and come up with bold recommendations about how to deal with this issue. Because the bottom line, Catherine, is, you know, right now we're in last place. Hawaii was the last state to ban cesspools, and we have the highest number of cesspools per capita in the entire country. But we also, the silver lining is that we have all kinds of new technologies that we can bring to Hawaii and learning from other states and what they've done in the past, we can make Hawaii a leader in the country because there's technologies now where we can recycle all of our waste. So none of it is wasted. And so right now we spend you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in these expensive treatment plants only to ship the solids to landfills and pump the water out to sea where it does no good and actually does some damage. But we can recycle all of that. So we can use the water for um, irrigation and we can use the solids, you know, turn it into biochar, which is a soil amendment, helps prevent erosion and can help the state meet its carbon goals because it's a carbon sink. So there's really positive things ahead that if we're bold, we can make Hawaii one of the leaders in the nation. That was Stuart Coleman, executive director and co-founder of VI, Wastewater Alternatives and Innovations, a nonprofit aimed at helping Hawaii meet the 2050 deadline for homeowners to convert from cesspools to more environmentally friendly systems. Hawaii was the last state in the country to ban cesspools and has more than 90,000 cesspools across the islands that have to be closed in less than 30, day, uh, 30 years or risk fines. reality check today brings in Honolulu Civil Beats political reporter Kevin Dayton. He has a story about how the uh, cesspool bribery scandal might or might not impact Hawaii's political landscape. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Kevin. Yeah, so, you know, we have to note that this is an election year. Absolutely, and and if you're walking around the state capitol, if you get a chance to get into the state capitol, it's been closed for a while. Um, there's no question that lawmakers are, are pretty shaken by what's what what happened this week. Uh, the the fraud charges, wire fraud charges against uh, former Senator Kalani English and former Representative Ty Cullen. Um, I, I sort of compare it to you know you think about the way people sort of gather and compare notes after some accident or tragedy. That's kind of the the mood at the capitol right now. Um, people seem to be stunned. Um, apparently, there were some rumors that English might be in some sort of trouble when he stepped down after the session ended last year, but I don't think any people really knew what was happening. And But Cullen uh, came as even more of a shock. He uh, is sort of an up-and-coming lawmaker, relatively young at 41, um, and he was definitely being groomed for bigger things. And so people are sort of stunned by the way um, this came down. Yeah, I mean, you know, we heard how uh, there might be an opening uh, for the finance chair, Right. And if he was the number two person in that powerful committee, you know, uh, it's like, what happens now? Absolutely. Well, uh, the speaker said yesterday that uh, he's uh, hoping to fill that position, that vice chairman's position that Cullen had uh, very soon. Um, but, you know, that, that job doesn't necessarily mean that you would become the finance chair. As most people know, I think reps, representative of the current chair, Sylvia Luke, is leaving to run for lieutenant governor. Um, that would obviously leave an opening in a very powerful position. That's one of the most influential positions in state government. Cullen appeared to be being groomed for that job, and and this obviously leaves a uh, sort of a big big gap in in the bench, I guess you could say, in, in people moving up. Yeah, I'm sure lots of tongues are wagging down there. Absolutely, and you know, politically speaking, it's interesting because you know the new charges are just the latest in a string of investigations that have sort of tarred the Democratic Party. And as the accusations pile up, it becomes kind of hard to, to argue that, for the Democrats to credibly argue that each new mess is an isolated incident. And just to recap a couple of them, we had obviously the, the very famous convictions of former Honolulu Police Chief Louis Kealoha and his deputy prosecutor wife, Catherine. Um, we had uh, former Honolulu prosecutor Keith Kaneshiro receiving a letter indicating he was the target of a federal investigation. Um, more recently, we had the indictments of former Honolulu Corporation Counsel Donald Leong and former managing director Roy Amamiya for alleged misconduct at Honolulu Holly. And we had a chance to sort of talk about this with a University of Illinois at Chicago political science pro professor named Christopher Mooney. 
And he made the point that these kinds of scandals tend to happen when one party has near absolute control. It really helps government transparency to have an active and aggressive minority party. So then the question is, what happens next? And, uh, you know, there could be some political fallout from this, but Cullen and English have already resigned, of course, and the options for Hawaii voters are pretty limited. Well, you know, when I first heard the news, I was going back to the days of, uh, you know, former House Speaker Danny Quijano and and that conviction, uh, you know, Milton Holt, you know, the, the list just goes on. Uh, and there, there are a number of people over at uh, uh, Honolulu Holly as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. If you think back to uh, 2002, it's the example that, that I was particularly interested in. You had former Honolulu City Councilwoman Reen Moncho uh, and former Senator State uh, State Senator Marshall Ige were locked up in 2002. Uh, former City Councilman Andy Maricatani was sentenced to prison in late 2001. You had the uh, federal investigation of United Public Workers Union leader Gary Rodriguez uh, that same year was playing out. And you had, you know, some very well-publicized investigations of campaign donors of uh, Mayor Jeremy Harris. He was, he was Honolulu mayor at the time. So people were talking a lot about corruption that year. And it probably is not a coincidence that that was the year that the state of Hawaii selected uh, Linda Lingle, uh, a Republican, as governor in 2022. And, of course, that marked the first time since statehood that Hawaii voters picked a Republican for that office. But that took a lot of preparation. Lingle, I think everybody understands that Lingle invested years getting ready for that race. Uh, and as, as one person put it, you know, it's, um, you, you know, you have to be prepared for the opportunities to, that come along. And she really was in that particular time. Yeah. And so we'll just have to see if the Republicans make any gains. Of course, they've always had the challenge of not having uh, strong enough candidates. Uh, but, yeah, we'll just have to see what happens in November. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Kevin. Thank you. All right. We have been talking to a political reporter, Kevin Dayton, for our reality check today. To read his full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by February 25th. 22-year-old North Shore native Moana Jones-Wong won the first ever women's billabong pro pipeline this past weekend. It was the first time a women's championship tour event or CT event was held at the legendary surf spot. It was a historic day marked by clean waves and an energetic crowd. Moana Jones-Wong pulling up under the curtain, standing tall. Moana, pipe barrel just underneath the hook, coming out with a spin. Arms up tall, the Bolton House is loving that. Moana Jones Wong, you are number one in the world. And Jones Wong was a relative unknown prior to the contest. She hadn't surfed in one in six years and was invited to compete as a wild card entry. But making history is nothing new for her. Last year, she earned her bachelor's degree when she became the first graduate of the University of Hawaii West, Oahu's Hawaiian and Indigenous Health and Healing Program. She sat down with the Conversations Russell Subiano to talk about her win and why surfing is important to her identity as a Native Hawaiian. Winning any kind of contest is a pretty big deal in this contest is pretty historic. And I'm sure you've heard a lot of people say that. Can you talk about what that victory felt like? Yes. I mean, you know, growing up watching the Pipe Masters and just, you know, watching videos about the best pipe surfers in the world, Pipe has always drawn my attention. I just fell in love with it at an early age, but I never wanted anything to do with it because it's scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like super scary and dangerous, but it was so beautiful and like it was fun to watch. 
but I'll put it that way. It was very fun and very entertaining to watch. But um, as I got older, for some reason, I, I just like really got captivated and drawn to the wave and uh, started spending all my time out there mm -hmm. and just fell in love with surfing out at Pipe. Even like when I would be at school, I'd be like looking at the cam, the surf line cam, watching right. Pipe, just like, <laughs> oh, it's so good right now. Like, how come I'm not out there? Like, right. If pipe is good, I pretty much lose my mind. It's like, oh, why am I not out there? So yeah, like pipe is so special to me and it's not like any other wave. So last year I heard the announcement that there was going to be like a woman's CT event out here. And, you know, forever it's just been the men's contest out mm -hmm. here forever. So I was like, wow, that's, that's so cool. Like, I hope, I hope I get into this contest. That would be amazing. And um, I got the call up a couple months ago in like December to be in the contest. And I was just so happy because, you know, pipe is like my favorite wave in the world, my favorite place to be in the world. Like this is my home. And I, I mean, I was born and raised right here too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's like, it is my home. I haven't done a contest for like six years too. So this was the first contest I've done since I was 16 years old, but yeah, taking that win out here for me was it was something that I've just been dreaming about since I was a little kid. And it's kind of like my blue crush moment. I'm yeah. so stoked. Like, I cannot believe this. It's unbelievable. And, um, I still wake up. I mean, it's only been a couple of days, but like I wake up every morning and I have to go and look. I'm like, did this happen? And I'm like, it, it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. And, you know, many, many surfers dream of surfing pipeline. Others try and find that they're not ready or if it's, or it's not for them. And I don't know if you saw that video, that recent video of that lifeguard pulling some tourist surfers out of pipe and telling them, you know, don't surf here. You're not ready for pipe. Yeah. You grew up on the North shore. When did you first paddle out and how does one become proficient at surfing pipe? Well, the first time I ever paddled out, I was 12 years old, but I mean, you can paddle out the pipe on a small day and it's like, it's still gnarly. So it was a small day when I paddled out. It was like in the beginning of the winter season. Like, so the swells are still, still nothing crazy, but out at pipe, there's just so much power out here. Even if it's a small day, you're going to get, you're going to definitely be in for some beatings out here. So my first wave, I just dropped in and I just ate it so badly. And I was like a good surfer at 12 years old. Like I had all these, I was sponsored by Billabong. I was like winning all these contests and I was immediately humbled. And I was like, okay, this wave is not like any of the other waves on North shore. This wave is nothing to mess around with. Like I need to get better at surfing all the other waves. And then I'm going to come back out here when I'm ready. Yeah. So that's what I did. I went and Matt, like got super good at all the other waves, got way more comfortable in the ocean. Like put in my time. And then when I knew that I was not going to be a hazard out there and I was not going to get myself in any trouble, then I was like, okay, I'm ready to go surf pipe now. Sounds just like, just like that movie North shore, right? Where you gotta, you gotta get all the, all the steps in before you get to, to the <laughs> yeah. top of the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah. true. It's true. That money, yeah. that, that movie North shore is like actually super accurate in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's <super> funny. Right. <laughs> it, as, as you, as you were getting more proficient at surfing pipe, were there other people that that helped you that were there to kind of give you advice or, or insight? Were, were you able to kind of glean information off of others who had been surfing pipe for a, a long time? For sure. I mean, put it this way, like when I when I went out the pipe, I didn't want to like get any type of, you know, special treatment i wanted to earn my spot out there i was yeah. like just because i'm a girl and i'm born and raised here on north shore i don't want any special treatment i want to earn my spot just like everyone else out here earned their spot too so all the guys out there that are the best i think they noticed that and they liked it they liked that i never tried to like you know sit out where they were sitting or get in anybody's way i was always super respectful and just you know to myself and just caught my waves that I knew that I was, those are, those are my waves. I'm going to go on those <laughs> waves. Everyone else's waves. Like I'm not going to even try to even go on your waves, but um, people that really 
were super nice to me and gave me awesome tips out there was people like Derek Ho, yeah. um, Jamie O'Brien, John John Florence, all the local boys out here. They pretty much all adopted me as their little sister and just right treated me like family and all watched my progression and cheered me on the whole way. And when there was any type of tips or advice, they would give it to me. But for the most part, it was just like them, you know, watching me, if watching over me and making yeah. sure like I was okay. If I, right. if I it on a wave, they would all look in and make sure I was good. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. But yeah, they, they all had a huge role in me surfing out at pipe. Cause I watched them. Those are the people that I wanted to surf. Like I'm going to sit right here and I'm going to take notes right now. And that's what I did. <laughs> I love that you had a very student approach to it, knowing that you had a lot to learn before you yeah. were able to get in there. You know, more women surfers have entered into the public consciousness in recent years. Just kind of off the top of my head, I think about Bethany Hamilton producing the Soul Surfer movie, Carissa Moore winning an Olympic gold medal. Who were your influences and how have you seen opportunities increase for women surfers to be a larger part of the conversation? My influences was for sure, Bethany, Carissa, like they're like heroes for sure. Kayla Kennelly, Rochelle Ballard, like they're like the original pipe girls for sure. And like they they paved the way for, for all of us in like surfing heavier waves. Um, I think that because of the contest out of pipe, the CT contest, and because of like other venues on the tour from the uh, WSL, such as GLAN or Chopes in Tahiti, with these kind of heavier waves that have been iconic spots for the men, I think this is really going to make bigger names for women in surfing because, you know, the women never had such prestigious waves, you know, they had like, you know, pretty like not the greatest waves. So no one really cares. It's like not trying to talk bad about name, but no, not a lot of people really, you know, care to watch junk waves. Like no one wants to see like junk wave. We want to see like firing, beautiful, heavy waves. Like this is like a show. Like we want to, we want to see a show. And I think with women surfing, going in that direction of those type of waves, those more iconic waves, yeah. there's going to be a lot more, a lot more talk around women surfing. I think surfing is one of the, one of the big sports where the playing ground is, is pretty even. I mean, it doesn't matter how tall you are or how short you are. It just matters how good you are on the board, on the wave. So it seems like the opportunity for women to surf the same waves as men is, you know, yeah. it's, it's on the horizon. Yeah, totally. Cause like, I, I can, I'm a great person to represent that because I'm five, I'm like pretty much almost five, two, and I weigh like 110 pounds uh-huh. and I've caught in a lot of waves at pipe that the guys will go on too. So I feel pretty, I mean, that makes me feel good about myself. I'm like, Oh, like, a guy wanted to go for this wave and I was deeper than him and he had to back off for me. I was like, Oh, cool. This must've been a pretty good wave. Then you said in a, in an interview with university of Hawaii news that surfing gave you your identity, that you feel connected to our culture, our ancestors and the ocean when you're out there. Can you talk a little bit more about this, this idea of, of our identities being tied to Hawaiian traditions like surfing, you know, like think yeah. about, yeah, think about the people that, that dance for Mary Marnar and are excellent at their skills. Why is it important for us as Hawaiians to connect to one or more parts of our culture and be able to build our identity that way? Well, in Hawaiian culture, there is, I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's called the Lokahi Triangle. And at the top of the triangle is Keakua. And on either side of the triangle is the Kai and the Aina, so the ocean and the land. And then on the other side is the Kanaka. So that's like us together as humans and Hawaiians. We cannot be connected to our culture if we're not connected to the ocean, connected to the land. To connect yourself to the ocean or the land, you have to spend time in it. You have to be a part of it. So for me, connecting to the ocean is surfing. And other people, it's fishing or maybe like diving, like whatever, like just being, spending time in the ocean, getting a relationship with it. Because as Native Hawaiians, the ocean is just as much our home as land. 
And when we are connected to, you know, the ocean, the land, each other, Keakua, that is, that is as close as we're going to get to being in Lokahi, which is harmony, unity, and it's just, that's every goal for a Native Hawaiian. And I feel like I am in Lokahi because of surfing. Thank you so much for your time, Moana, and congratulations on your big win. No worries. Thank you. So humble. That was surfer Moana Jones-Wong, winner of the first ever women's billabong pro pipeline, talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. After last weekend's victory, she sits atop the World Surf League's women rankings, just ahead of Olympic gold medalist Carissa Moore. Jones-Wong is expected to compete next in the Hurley Pro at Sunset Beach in the coming days. Hawaii Foundation this month launched a weekly lecture series around Queen Liliuokalani's homes. They include Iolani Palace, the Queen's retreat at Boyd House, and Liliuokalani's possible birthplace at Haleuluhe. And today's lecture spotlights Washington Place, which is getting ready to celebrate its 175th anniversary. First Lady Don Ige has been busy planning a number of events as the historic home, now a museum, is set to resume tours later this month. So we're so excited to be part of the Cathedral Lecture Series. And this Thursday, February 10th, the series will be featuring Washington Place, and of course, Washington Place was the home of Queen Liliuokalani and our past territorial and state governors. And uh, we're very excited about this uh, lecture. Uh, I will be introducing the guest speaker for the lecture, and the guest speaker is Rihanna Williams. She has been a docent at Washington Place for over 15 years, and she's just a remarkable storyteller, and she can tell you all kinds of stories uh, about the history of Washington Place and, and all the, the things, the, the family kind of events that occurred here, as well as the more official type of events. And I think people will just enjoy listening to her stories. Rihanna is the author of a book. Uh, she wrote the book, Queen Liliokalani, the Dominus family, and Washington Place, their home. So she has all the families uh, involved in that book, uh, where she has, again, a lot of stories. Rihanna is also a historian specializing in the Hawaiian monarchy period. So we do rely on her for a lot of um, expertise, a lot of stories, and she's just a wonderful person to just talk story with. And this anniversary is a big one. Oh, yes, it's a big one. The home will be 175 years old this year, and that is just quite amazing for a home to be that old. You know, the home was first built by John and Mary Dominus, and their son, uh, John Owen Dominus, of course, marries Lydia Paki, who be queen, becomes Queen Liliokalani, and that is the connection, and that is how the queen became a resident here in this home. And so what does the foundation got planned uh, to mark this uh, anniversary? So we have a special 175th anniversary committee made up of leaders in the community in the different areas of arts, culture, and history. And together we have several events that we are planning. Um, we have a new exhibit coming up on the second floor of the Washington Place. And that will be done at the end of March. Also, we have planned a concert with the Royal Hawaiian Band. As people might know, the Royal Hawaiian Band played here for both Mary Dominus and Queen Liliokalani. And the band has uh, done a, did a concert here about five years ago. And during that concert, which they will be, I'm sure, repeating many of the sim same songs and music, will be songs written by Queen Liliokalani. On March 31st, two days before that, we're going to have a special hula presentation by fourth graders from the public schools, and they will be doing a hula in honor of the Queen. Because of COVID, I know a lot of events are kind of in flux, so we'll just kind of have to see how things are to, yes. to gauge the crowd size. 
Yes, we are still in the process of planning. So right now we're planning for the opening events to be on March 31st, uh, featuring the fourth graders and their hula, as well as a proclamation signing uh, with Governor Ige uh, proclaiming this year the 175th anniversary of Washington Place. And April 2nd, uh, we are planning to have that, that Royal Hawaiian Band concert along with an open house. And, you know, we hope the COVID numbers are in control so we can proceed with, you know, a gathering uh, for those events. Well, I uh, was missing the holiday events there with the decorations and, oh, gosh, I think you had cookie decorating at one time. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I I think that's, yeah, I mean, we've all had to make adjustments during the pandemic and, uh, you know, we look forward to uh, regular visits, uh, you know, at the museum whenever the pandemic allows. Well, we, we do. We are continuing um, our tours from the middle of February. We'll be starting up tours again. And we have our tour size are, are going to be very limited to four people per group. So it's quite, quite small. So we can practice the social distancing within within the home. But we do have uh, a website that uh, provides a lot of information, historical information on the home, as well as virtual tours of different parlors of the home. So uh, people can go to the WashingtonPlace.gov website and learn about the home and, and take a virtual tour. And so what can you share with us about the upstairs? Oh, you know, the upstairs, I, I'm very excited about the second floor. In 2017, we renovated the second floor for health and safety reasons. When I first uh, came here as First Lady, the second floor was just in disrepair. It wasn't used, and it needed much, much repair, so the floors would be sturdy and the walls would be painted. And so now it is a gallery. We have several galleries featuring some of the Queen's items, as well as, as, well as John Owen Dominus's items. And uh, we are looking forward to having an exhibit uh, on, in one of the larger parlors focusing on Queen Liliokalani. So we are very excited about that. And so will the tours uh, later this month, will they include access to the second floor as well? Yes, absolutely. Since we opened the second floor, when we opened it in 2017, it was the first time people could actually go and visit the second floor of the home because, as you know, the second floor has always been the private rooms and the private areas for whoever was living here at that, at that time. But now the governor lives in a private residence right behind the historic home, so more people have access to Washington Place and to be able to learn and enjoy the history of the home. And is there anything in the upstairs exhibit that will include, you know, the uh, pictures of the first families that have lived there? Right now, we have a photo montage of each of the state governors and and some of the special visitors that they've had during their tenure. So right now, that's what's in that large parlor, and they have and there's quite a bit of photos there for each of the state governors. How long has Washington Place been closed? You know, for special large events. The beginning of the pandemic, we have not had, you know, the typical large events. We've had smaller tours with very, and smaller luncheons with very limited people. But the traditional large events, uh, large receptions, we have not had yet. People are are hungry to see the historic places again. So hopefully, yes. uh, the pandemic will allow that. And I I am so excited about having people back here in the home and welcoming the public to see Washington Place. It's always been my goal here to have the home be open to as many people in the public as interested because the home is really for for all the citizens of Hawaii. We have been hearing from First Lady Don Ige about the celebration of the 175th anniversary of Washington Place. Today's lecture on the uh, state takes place at noon, so tune in right after the show. Look for links to the historic Hawaii Lecture Series on our website later today.
Support for HPR comes from Hawaiian Airlines with a commitment to helping guests travel Pono to protect the islands and preserve the culture, natural resources, and communities. More information at hawaiianairlines.com slash travelpono. Aloha, this is Steve Kerwood, host of Living on Earth. I'm excited to be on Hawaii Public Radio for a weekly look at climate, ecological health, and environmental justice. We confront the challenges of climate disruption, but also showcase the spectacular biodiversity of the planet we call home, including species like Hawaii's very own Nene. Tonight at 6.30 here on HBR One. Have you ever stood in front of an art piece and experienced a surge of emotion? Well, this could be due to the fact that there are healing frequencies in color. Faye Vasquez infuses her art with this concept. HBR's Lillian Song sat down with the Kailua-based artist to find out how her work elevates the consciousness of her audience. I studied art at the Universidad Central de Venezuela. My major was in film. When I landed in Hawaii, I learned that it was a big industry here mm. and I know that prior and I absolutely 100% wanted to break in. Not only have you broken in but you're putting your own personal stamp on locally produced content as a director at Kinetic Productions where you can bring your your unique perspective to commercial filmmaking. I have always been a freelancer and last year they offered me if I was interested in being represented by them as a TV commercial director. And I'm proud to say, yes, I made it. I'm the only female and Latin director on the island commercially. Congratulations. So you're really helping break that glass ceiling. Well, it's about time, right? We're overdue already. Mm -hmm. So you came on my radar for something that's not film related. I heard about you and your artist talk that's coming up this weekend in Kailua. I am the latest addition to Island Treasures Gallery mm. in Kailua. Mm. They're doing a meet and greet. There is one wall that contains a lot of my artwork. Mm -hmm. This Saturday is an opportunity to, to say hi. Why don't you first just tell me about this concept you have, which is to elevate consciousness connecting to the healing frequency of colors what is that thank you for asking that i strongly believe that there is power in beauty and i also strongly believe that everything is energy words have an energy and have a, a frequency and they have an impact the same thing happens with colors Different colors have different frequencies that are able to be measured by megahertz. And when I paint, I'm aiming to create a beautiful piece. And the colors that I'm using are intentional to, to help out. There is so much focus and emphasis nonstop in the negativity that I want to offer the opposite. I want to offer a moment, a way that people can see something and without even knowing, they can get impacted in a positive way. And when you are creating this, when you put your palette together, where is your studio and when do you find yourself going to the studio to paint? My studio is at home in Kailua. And when I'm in the film set, I have to work with a lot of people. When I'm painting, is my solo work, which I love. It's very therapeutic and it's a moment of processing. So I paint there and it's a mix. I go to tubes and by all means, there is mixing of colors. And are you very in the moment or do you come to your canvas with a, a notebook with some sketches, some ideas that have like hit you throughout the day or do you look at the open canvas and just say, hey, I'm going to just start here and see where the, the day takes me? Most of the time I do have a plan. I research, I sketch. My research can be going out to nature and taking pictures. And then I will adapt my own pictures to a piece. Or 
it could be an online research, depending on something that came across to me during that day or week. So usually I come to the canvas with a plan, with an idea in mind, and then I, I pursue it. And other times I start multiple ones at the same time and then go back to one and then invest more in the other and things like that. Mm. I use acrylics and the beauty of acrylics is that the more layers, the juicier it gets. It's an easier way to create textures and shades and whatnot. It's an amazing medium. And because you're that conduit, what colors and ranges, what emotions like it? So if you're in the color wheel of the cool blues and greens, what sort of emotions do those evoke? And if you start adding a pop of red, does that go in a different direction on the, the frequencies? Absolutely. Uh, that is a great question. So the color that has the highest energy frequency is magenta. So during the lockdown, I chose to paint a magenta plumeria, a pink plumeria. So much negativity, so much fear, so much that I was, I have to do something. And definitely that was my own processing. So magenta is unconditional love. It just connects to a higher realm of emotions. And I have a tendency to use it a lot in my paintings on purpose. And then in that side of the wheel, if we go, say, to red, reds are our passion, right? And determination and will. And the red hues have this power, this drive, this will. On the other side, the blues have a tendency to be calmer, to provide more peace of mind, to be more relaxing. Yellows are like in between. So I can just see this. You're in your Kailua studio painting with intention, putting colors on canvas that are a fest of colors that resonate for you. With your career, you being a global citizen, you have so much inspiration in life to draw from. Do you go back to Venezuela? It has been a couple of years that I have not been able to fly back home. COVID changed some dynamics. However, I'm grateful for COVID because due to the lockdown, I was able to come out of the closet as an artist and just find the courage to show my work to the world. And the response has been much better than I expected, actually. Wow. But looking at your website, it's very professional. But what you're saying is like you're actually new to the public art scene. It's like you've never showed your work before. That is correct. I'm not new painting. However, I am new, absolutely, exposing myself and my work to mm. the world. But you have another facet. You work in film. Yeah. But yes. it's still your vision. So in a different medium, you kind of had that public experience. Like you said, you've always been a painter, but you're now sharing this other facet of yourself, but with the same intention of, I put it together, this is my work, here you go. 100%, and where I'm at right now is to merit both mediums. So I bring my art into my directing. I use colors on purpose. My sets have a specific colors and highlights on purpose. And some people will look at it and get it, and some people won't, and that's okay. My way with colors and beauty plus cinematographic language, then they're merging together. It's your signature style. Somebody exactly. can look at this set and say, this is face. Yes. I have been so fortunate to actually be able to make a couple of custom pieces for shoots, which make it super fun. Oh, wow. Like background, mm, let's just paint and I'll bring something and it works beautifully. So yes, definitely. I wanted to make it my signature. It will be my distinction. Mm -hmm. So how did you bring your painting onto set? So usually before we shoot, we scout the locations, we take multiple pictures, we explore camera angles, we discuss myself and the director of photography, like, okay, what would be the best way to tell this story? 
And depending on the angles that, you know, we're looking at, then I pay attention to the background and what can be placed in the background. So we did a commercial for the Dental Society and I created a custom piece for it. And then we did a still photography shoot for American Savings Bank. And I also created a piece for it that worked for that time and space. And also, you know, the colors, like the dental one has a lot of turquoise throughout because it's calming, it's relaxing to the nervous system. I mean, hey, who likes to go to the dentist, right? It's not like a pleasurable thing. We go because, yeah, we want to take care of ourselves. So sending that vibration of calmness and just like being grounded and you can see through the props and through different elements on the frame that the teal color is played throughout. Mm -hmm. And that was designed on purpose, yes. And finally, what are you looking forward to in this new year, in 2022? Well, I definitely am looking forward to direct more. It's a very patriarchal industry still. And even though I have made it, I would love to see more and encourage other women, other females to step up and help change that dialogue. That is in filmmaking. And then in art, I'm definitely looking to expand not only in hawaii so island treasures gallery has my work i envision two more galleries on the island one in waikiki one in the north shore and then i want to expand to europe expand to the world and that was faye vasquez known professionally in the film industry as a director and producer this weekend she's donning her painter's cap for an artist talk at island treasures gallery in Kailua, Saturday from 4 to 7.30 p.m. We'll share links to her work on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. That is it for now. Noe Tanigawa will be sitting in tomorrow for an Aloha Friday show. And what's on your mind? Clean water? To mask or not to mask indoors as we move from pandemic to endemic? What's your comfort level? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. 